2: This is Make it M.I.P.
3: with Marcelo, Marcelo. Mark Thompson. Make it Get woke.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special broadcast and conversation with you and for you today. We all uh, have mourned the loss of one of the greatest icons in our history, none other than Henry Louis Aaron and two people I've asked to join us today to talk about Hank Aaron's impact on our lives as a people and their lives as well. The two very special people and most qualified to have this conversation. Uh, Growing up as a little boy, uh, Hank Aaron was was my generation's true hero. Speaking of heroes, one of our guests today, he's been with us before. We're happy to have him back. He is the author of The Last Hero, which I think is probably one of the best biographies on Hank Aaron, other than Hank's own autobiography. Strongly recommend each of you get it and read it. Howard Bryant of ESPN is here with us. We welcome him also here with us. We know about Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. But this is the only man to have been drafted in four professional leagues. Great athlete, Hall of Famer himself. uh, As a matter of fact, growing up watching Hank Aaron, the next one to watch was him. And and he did things that uh, ballplayers had done, yet he had his own foundation. He had a section. Um, in the stadium when he was in San Diego for young kids to go and watch the games. He was doing all of that. And he's now a special advisor to the Players Union, moving and shaking. Hall of Famer Dave Winfield is also with us. Um, welcome to you both, brothers. And first of all, happy Black History Month.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It's a
2: pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you and, and glad we finally were able to get together and, and make this happen. Dave, I want to I begin with you, man. Um, uh, how did you first come to know Hank Aaron, even before you were a player? I don't I mean to date you, but I'm not sure how how old you were when, when he was first making his moves. But talk to us a little bit about um, how you first
1: realized
2: as a young person who
1: he was. Well... Uh, growing up, I'll say in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> um, baseball was the number one sport in America. It was. People now think it's basketball or football. They didn't think Super Bowl. Howard could uh, expound on those kind of things. They didn't think Super Bowl would succeed. They didn't care if Bill Russell was winning, winning 10 championships or whatever up in Boston. The American heroes were baseball players. And so, growing up in Minnesota, my brother and I we played baseball, and w- baseball cards was the method of communicating who these players were and an ebony magazine. <laughs> you know you would look and see uh the the black or African American baseball players that were playing uh I rarely could make it to a game because we didn't have any money, we didn't have a car. Or anything like that. We didn't have a television when I grew up. So, um, it, it was, um, a great thing for me to finally, once I became a professional player to be able to meet and play against Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and McCovey and Gibson and people like that. So that is my story, how I, but I just knew about Hank Aaron. They were one of the heroes of America and for me. Um, Howard Bryant. Yeah, so I was going to say, Dave, when you were. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, no. Go I was going to say, Dave,
4: when 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 Dave, when you were probably ten, between ten and fourteen, fifteen, as a you know sweet spot ages as a as a kid. Um, the Braves were still in Milwaukee. Could you get them in mini in Minnesota, in Saint
1: Paul? No, no, no. We didn't radio i don't think it would even go that far i mean people would say yeah. what 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 age did they live in <laughs> yeah but no it was the minnesota twins when they came to town the twins yeah and the right yeah those those were my heroes that i could see on a daily mm-hmm. basis yeah
3: yeah
1: so but speaking of that howard that's a good segue because i wanted to ask
2: you this at some point that was one of the, the the challenges to Hank Aaron's career was that he was not in a major market. And so a lot of the focus was on all the New York teams and especially Willie Mays. That's why, you know, it kind of shocked, especially a lot of white folk when they looked up one day and he had 700 home runs, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, I think that there are, there are always, to me, there are two things that really undermine Henry as a player. And not just necessarily as a, from his demeanor. Not everybody is built. I mean, Henry was an introvert. He was not that guy who was promoting himself, drawing attention to himself. All of that aside, there were really two things that, that changed Henry's arc. And, and Dave knows this really well because he was in, you know, he was on both sides of it. One, I think that he was Henry as a player. When you play in Milwaukee and then you play in Atlanta, And Dave knows this very different than when you play in San Diego than you go to New York. All of a sudden, people notice you. People notice. There are people who who told me, and I disagreed with this because, you know, Dave was my favorite player growing up, as he knows a gazillion times. But there are people who told me Dave was a better player in San Diego than he was in New York in terms of just pure athleticism and pure, they said, you didn't even see the real Dave Winfield, you know, when he first came up, you know, he had been in the league 10 years by the time he got to New York. And so when you think about Henry, you're looking at him in Milwaukee. You're looking at him in Atlanta. You're not seeing him in New York. You're not seeing him in L.A. You're not seeing him on the game of the week. You're not, no one's getting that, you know, the real sort of look at who he was simply because he wasn't in the major market. And, of course, Willie was. And so there was, there was that. The, the other thing that I think undermines Henry generationally, historically, is the fact that when you think about your favorite players, when you think about the great, great players of all time, and you think about their moments. And you know, Dave is talking about not having a television. We live in the visual age right now. And when you think of Michael Jordan, what's the first thing you think of? You think of the commercials, you think of him jumping from the foul line. You think of the move against the Lakers, left hand, right hand. When you see Dr. J, same thing. When you think Dave Winfield, you think Dave Winfield with the big long strides, either defensively, offensively, but on the bases. You know, when you think of all those players, you think of them, you know, Billy Mays, you think of the catch, you think of them at their best, in their physical prime, doing their thing. The lasting moment of Henry Aaron is when he's 40, when he's breaking the record. So the image that everybody sees of Henry is he's a 40 year old player, he's 20 pounds overweight, he's past his prime, he's breaking a marathon historical record. You didn't see Henry in the 50s. When he weighed 175 pounds, when he was a pure athlete, when he was stealing bases the same way Willie did and the same way those other guys did. So people don't look at him and immediately associate him as a super athlete because the image they see is him trotting around the bases as a 40-year-old. As a so you don't get that sort of, like I never saw Jackie Robinson play, obviously. he He died when I was three years old. But the image of Jackie made you want to play baseball, the image, the electricity of watching him play. And Henry never really got that. I mean, on the one hand, you get it because it was it takes a long time to hit 715 home runs, but in our image, in our memory of him, unless you saw him at his best, the video history of him doesn't give him his due. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dave, what
2: was your experience like once you got a chance to meet him? Were you able to be around him while both of you were still playing and, and get any advice?
1: Um, the advice was more, and the relationship was strong post playing days. I knew him. uh we I played against him. I would, when I was in San Diego, he was in Atlanta. I would try, you know, try to beat his team, but I was always pulling for him because I knew the negative things that were happening to him. The death threats, you know, going to break Babe Ruth's record an African American man going to do that. So he was under a lot of duress. So I was always pulling for him. And I just did, admired his style and such. And then he went to the other league and I did as well. So we didn't interact that much. But post playing days, I mean, so many dinners and special events that we went to. One of the great things that I did, I'll always remember, I got a chance to MC his 75th Birthday party in Atlanta with a couple of former presidents. You had Carter, you had uh, Clinton, you had a couple of governors, you had other heads of state, and I'm the MC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, things of that nature. And then in baseball, I mean, we would talk about how do we, he would always say, how do we get some more black kids in baseball? I said, Hank, we're working on some things. I'm on a joint committee with MLB, and we have a foundation. We're going to create, you know, certain things around that. So they even named uh, Hank Aaron Invitational down in uh, Atlanta at Old Dodger, uh, the Dodger Stadium. In fact, Mark, did, I don't know if your son had a chance to make it to it. but Oh, yeah.
2: No, he went uh, in the summer of what? I think, think 20, yeah, summer of 2019.
1: OK. And, and he and, got a chance to meet Hank as well. that's Right. That's and right. those things are branded in your memory. Oh, yeah. And, and, and these are living legends. And just so he was a, a friend and he was like family to me. And, you know, you put very few people on a pedestal in one's life, especially if you're playing against someone. But he was one of those people. And Howard, as you said, he was soft spoken. Here's a man from, you know, rural Georgia growing up in the, what, 30s and 40s and, I mean, uh, 50s and all the indignities he had to deal with. So guys from that era were pretty much low key. You talk about Willie Mays. I mean, other than the say hey and all of that, you had to be careful where you walked and what you said. Yeah. Willie McCovey, what you know, and the Billy Williams, these guys coming from rural Alabama, you know, Mobile, Alabama, and, and things like this. So they had to be careful. So they weren't always outspoken. You know, they let their, their, their speaking uh, be seen by how they played the game. As a
2: matter of fact, Howard, I was first yeah. on your book um, for today, and I was reading the part where, you know, Henry got a little bit heckled when he got to Milwaukee, even by some of his teammates. And it was that uh, Alabama experience and what his parents had taught him, mm-hmm. wasn't it? That, that made him kind of like, well, you know, I'm, I, I can't outspokenly fight these battles because they're going to be coming every minute of every day. Uh, aren't they? And, and it's, if I remember correctly, you wrote how, um, he would, uh, retain that information. He would size up his enemies and kind of keep
4: that information and, and, and store it to use later. Yeah. There's no good doubt about that. It's almost like. You know, Marlon Brando and the Godfather never tell anybody what you're thinking, right? You never let them know. And he was collecting. And I think one of the things that Henry always talked about in terms of why the record was so important, it wasn't simply to pass Babe Ruth. It was that if you had that record, they had to listen to you. When you're the all time home run champion, people have to listen to you. And Henry had something to say. And I think that Dave's got it right when he was talking about how it's a, it's such a different time and the speed in which things are happening historically is sort of mind boggling. It's, it's, you know, time is relentless. And to this generation and previous generations, it's difficult to remember that baseball was not just the number one sport. Baseball was by far the number one sport. It was the sport. It was the sport for the fans. It was the sport for in, in media. It was the sport for the players. If, I mean, what was the old line that the scouts used to use on you guys, Dave? You want to play football? What do you want? You want a major league contract or, or a limp, right? That was the thing. It was the sport that paid the most. Is that, you know, why would you play anything else other than, other than baseball? It's the game that's going to get you recognized. And people seem to, you know, people forget that even as late as the, the 1950s and 60s, even the early 70s, I remember watching wide world of sports as a kid, baseball, boxing, horse racing. I mean, those were the sports. They were the number one sports in the country for a long time. I'm like, why am I watching the Kentucky Derby? People cared about that stuff back then. And so, and when Henry came up, Henry told me he had not had an actual person-to-person conversation with a white person until he was 18. I mean, that's how segregated Mobile was, that you saw somebody white coming towards you, you put your head down. Or if it was a white woman, you crossed the street or whatever it was. You did not engage with these people. And it wasn't until he went to Eau Claire, Wisconsin in the minor leagues where he actually spoke to somebody white as like peers. And so you think about what that does. And then he comes to the Milwaukee Braves and you've got them, both the media and his teammates referring to him as Stepan Fetchit. They referred to him as Stepin Fetchit in print. You read the Milwaukee Journal in this. That was the nickname. Joe Adcock gave him that nickname. And so he's retaining all of this, that there's going to come a day where I'm going to be able to speak about some injustices and what's happening to me. But early in those, day, in those days, rookie year in 1954, for the first three, four years of his career, he had to sit and take it.
2: Uh, stay on there. I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Dave. But since you brought that up, Howard, because here's the other thing that I think was, was probably most revelatory about your book, The Last Hero. You make the case with evidence That what Henry Aaron endured in those early days and then going in the minor leagues and then playing in the Sally League, because there was not the same microscope of national media there as there was here in Brooklyn, that what Hank endured was under the cover of darkness. And because it was under the cover of darkness, it enabled those racists to even treat him more harshly than Jackie Robinson was treated because it was no camera lens
4: on it is am i
2: saying that correctly
4: no you got it right i mean it's not it's certainly not a comparison because nobody went through what jackie went through but what jackie did go through he endured with some levels of protection right the dodgers didn't train in florida the whole time they trained in cuba to lessen the impact on jackie they when jackie was in the minor leagues, they didn't send him down south he played in montreal and played up north in in to protect him a little bit obviously the most southern team was louisville which they played down there for the championship but henry was in a different category because of another thing which was was in 1944 1945 you knew who jackie robinson was he was a national athlete playing ucla so you knew jackie robinson as a basketball star you knew him as a football star you also knew him because of his court martial you knew him as a national figure these black players, this next generation of nineteen fifties black players, nobody cared. They just took you, even though you had talent, they took Hank Aaron. They put him in the Sally League down there by himself. No protection. The the you know, the Boston Braves attempt the Milwaukee Braves at the time when they drafted him. I'm sorry, when they signed him, they didn't have any real investment in him. They knew he was talented, but it was sink or swim. I remember Felix Mantilla, one of uh Henry's teammates, telling me that they were down in the Sally League playing in Jacksonville. And and the fans, the home crowd, uh, is chanting alligator bait at him. And Felix looks at one of the white players and says, What's alligator bait? And the player looks at him and says, You. And so this is the home team. And there's no protection. And you're they're by yourself. And you've got to endure this. And I was we did a, an event yesterday up here in Massachusetts with um, with Mo Vaughn uh, talking about Black History Month and the Negro Leagues and such. And I just love the way Mo, even today, Mo, his position was this is what we go through and you will dis- you will figure out whether or not you've got what it takes to survive. And there's no sugarcoat in it. So just think about what it was like to be in the Sally League down there by yourself.
1: Can can I just come in, uh, interject on that, uh, and, and and just say that is why I respected go- guys like Hank and Frank Robinson and Willie Mays and Billy Williams and Vader mm-hmm. Pence and all these guys because they went through so much. You know, I was on their shoulders. I am. I wanted to carve a relationship with them, talk to them. What have you been through? I didn't. You know, all of a sudden think that just because I was a number 1 draft pick and went to college and all that kind of stuff that that I knew what was happening so their history their experience I wanted to glean I wanted to learn from them and I was able to you know craft those relationships but that's why I respected them so greatly and I I don't want to uh not relay this one this one story and and how we would talked about how um they never got their, Hank never got his accolades or appreciation, or people didn't know who he was. When he was another good friend of mine, and you may have, you guys may have seen the documentary, The Black Godfather, Clarence Avance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a good mm-hmm. friend of mine. He lives out here in California, and um, he, he told me the story, and Hank shared it with me separately how when he, Hank was about to break the record, Babe Ruth's record, And Clarence is looking at this. He said, man, this black man needs to have um, opportunities, uh, you know, as far as endorsements and things of this nature, because he had virtually nothing. Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: um, he went down to Atlanta, met Hank and said, come on, we're going in. We're going to meet Coca-Cola, top guy at Coca-Cola. And he got the meeting and went up there. And Hank, he, he was taken aback by Clarence's tactics in the way he negotiated but basically he just told the the chairman uh that look, black people drink Coca-Cola too. You need to recognize this man. He's gonna he has one of the greatest careers in the history of our sport. And the man had nothing to say other than, You're right and he got him an endorsement. Mm-hmm. And uh mm-hmm. you know, but the relationship between those two, you know, barrier breakers and you know, guys that uh came up in different circumstances. So that's kind of a wonderful story. Hank laughs at it because the language wasn't, uh, Clarence didn't say, you should uh, <laughs> honor this black man. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> another yep, another yep. term, but he got the job done. And so we we laugh heartily about that situation.
4: Yeah, and, uh, it's funny.
1: Mm-hmm. Go, ahead, go ahead, Howard, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to
4: say, and, and, and those are the things when people talk about, oh man, why is Hank so bitter? And, it's just such a terrible word, and I I am really even more uh, hardcore about these things in terms of being diplomatic. I was talking, was Dave, you know, I'm working on this book on Ricky Henderson, and you and I talked about it before the pandemic, and Ricky would always say, man, he said, what did he say? He said, Dave, Dave was our lawyer. Dave was the lawyer. Dave, he said, Dave. Dave, Dave was, uh, I, I got to go look at the notes what he referred to you as, but the diplomat. Yeah. Um, he was the one, right? And I find myself as I get older feeling less and less diplomatic and I just look at it and I, I think we always talk about what Henry went through but it's very rarely framed as this is what you did to him. He went through it, but you did this to him. And that's the that double-edged sword about the word dignity. And sometimes the word dignity applies and sometimes the word dignity is used as a cover for what you did to him. And that's where Henry used to get so upset. I'm not bitter. You're asking me about what happened in my life. This is what happened. Do you want to know what happened to me or don't you? And Henry just had gotten to the point where it was like whenever I I answer a question, you think I'm mad, and I'm just telling you the truth. What you're really mad about is what you did to me. And that this undermines your enjoyment of me breaking the record. Maybe the reason I wasn't happy about breaking the record is because you made it an unhappy experience, and it never should have been an unhappy experience. Um,
2: the records are astounding. A lot of focus on 755, 715. But when you um, look at the whole catalog, um, my son was at a camp when he was like six years old. Um, and I think this was around one of the 715 anniversaries. And I ordered one of those commemorative bats with his whole stats on the bat and engraved on the bat. Took it to the camp and, um, most of the coaches weren't even aware that he's number three in hits. He has three, and if you take away 755 home runs, Dave, he still has 3,000 hits. It is, it, you know, and this probably is an unfair question to ask you, Dave, but when you look at the, the astounding numbers and the statistics, is it, can't we just pretty much stipulate that he was probably the greatest,
1: if not in the top three to ever put on the uniform? Oh, no question. No question. No question. I mean, I got to about four hundred home runs. I said, Damn, man, this is rough, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, I mean only <clears throat> three three hundred and some more to go. And I played I you know, so I, I wasn't just a, a home run guy, you know, I was tried to play the entire game, you know, defense, offense, stolen bases, all of that. But he had an he had an incredible career. I don't know how many All Star games I made. I had twelve in a row. Cheated out he had a twenty more, uh, 24, 24 of he had 24, Twenty four.
3: Yeah, twenty
1: four. Twice yeah. as many. But and so it's, it's the name and the respect and the, the the legacy that he he was building. But he was just an incredible human being, and um, as a man, as a family man, and the charitable stuff later on that he, that he did for other people um you know supporting our institutions and 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 scholarship for for young people and major league baseball uh one of the few things that you know Bud Sealing, you know as a player I, I I look at it differently than some some people but one of the one of the good things that he did was um have these honors I mean, for Hank Aaron. He supported him a great deal across the board. And um, a lot of stuff was late, but it was still timely.
4: That's right. Let me throw two things at you
1: about
4: this. Two two quick things that that always get me. Number one is when Henry was a kid, when he realized he had plus talent, could be a big leader, his goal was to break Stan Musial's national league record of 3,360 hits. That was the goal, right? That was his his Mount Everest. Early in the early 1960s, when the Braves start to fall down a little bit, and Eddie Matthews is getting older, Eddie retires, the team's not as good, Joe Adcock's gone, the offense isn't there. Henry's got to produce more offense. And in producing more offense, he's got to hit more home runs. And so all to hitting home runs. And so I'm sitting here, we're having dinner in Atlanta one day, and I said to him, so let me get this straight. You were so good. You could choose which all-time record you were going to break. <laughs> you was just going to go hits once, and now you just go home runs. I mean, nobody can do that. How many guys are actually, I mean, Ted Williams could have done it clearly, I mean, because he lost five years, but to be to be that talented a hitter, to choose which all-time record you were going to go for. And the other quick thing I was going to say is to just agree with Dave. I'm a troublemaker, and but my job is to hold big institutions accountable. That's what we do. And it must However, it must be said that one of the greatest things that happened to Henry in terms of legacy is Bud Selig taking over as commissioner. Bud idolized Henry. That was his guy in Milwaukee. Henry's his bigger reason that Bud even got into baseball. And when Bud took over as commissioner, where Henry was at that time, remember, that henry's autobiography i had a hammer came out in 91 and where henry was in 91 in terms of his relationship with baseball was very sour he was convinced that the game had passed him by in a lot of ways that they weren't interested in what he did he was very upset that the minute he broke the record you know media began talking about how now the most important record in the world was joe dimaggio's 56 game hitting streak that he just didn't feel like he was getting his due he was incredibly concerned about the number of black players, the declining number that by, you know, that Dave, as it turns out, that your 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 de- your generation in the 80s, that was the last golden age of black baseball. That was the last sure. time it was anywhere close to 20%. And so all of these different things really, you know, made him feel sour about the sport. Bud taken over, Bud rehabilitated Henry in a way that nobody else had. And Bud also put the hammer down on people at the commissioner's office who treated Henry like he was this bitter old man that no one wanted to deal with. They said, look, if you mess with Henry, now you're messing with me. And all of a sudden, people had to treat Henry better. And now they create the Hank Aaron Award. Now they have a relationship with the Hank Aaron Foundation. They've got the Hank Aaron Invitational. That all of these different things happen. They don't happen without Bud being there because somebody had to advocate for him. Somebody had to stand in in that commissioner's office and show um, some respect to him. And And that is that thing that, we talk about all the time now. I know the Players Association is doing a terrific job right now trying to you know, make sure that history doesn't go away because the sport itself has really never done a great job of maintaining certain players. And, and it should always be said, no matter what you say about Bud, that is the one thing he did right. And that's
2: because he grew up in Milwaukee and saw him in the early right. days. There was that, there was that, that, that idolization of 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 what he had done and, and that's very important um, the, the, the the talent he starts out mm-hmm. getting cross-handed he's hitting off the front foot so when my son first started playing Little League he's hitting off the front foot he saw a Hank Aaron video and he says well, Hank Aaron did it I said but you're not Hank Aaron <laughs> no don't, don't do that stop it and I, t- I shared that when I I'd tell my son stop looking at videos of you and trying to hit off the front foot. I used to just, that used to blow my mind. Dave. you know, the, the mm-hmm. things he did, even up until the end, it was still somewhat unorthodox. Like he could hit off the front foot because of the risk. But did you ever look at him and, and wonder, well, you just said the, we got the 400 and we're tripping. <laughs> did you ever look at the whole thing, you know, and yeah. say, how was this guy able to do this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I came along in an age, uh, Where I studied the game to me, baseball professionally, it was a game, it was a science, and it was a business. And the science part, I tried to learn how to make my body live up to its full potential. And, um, that is, uh, the mechanics, that is rest, that is, you know, intake of the right kind of fuel and all of that kind of stuff. But watching Hank where he was different. There's certain players, athletes that are different. He had these these strong hands, you know, like a mechanic or or construction worker or something like that. You know, strong hands and wrists. And so he could be almost off of the ground and these wrists would just flick through the zone. Nowadays people are talking about, oh, exit velocity and launch angle and all that kind of stuff. Hank, he would he would just stand up there calmly, take a stride, and then flick the wrist. His home runs would just go right over the fence, you know, a nice little arc, boom, over the fence, if the fence was 370, he hit a 380, 400, whatever the, he's not trying to hit the back of the stadium. <laughs> he's not trying to hit it to St. Louis. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, he get on that front foot, wait for the strike, bam, and hit it out of the park. And, and that's just unusual. People can't do that. Um, they don't teach it. It's just that he had a, a natural way of uh, hitting that he found. It, it, everybody looks for it. Everybody is searching for that, uh, oh, uh, the, the magic way for them to succeed. And Hank found it. There was no science to it. He just had that physical Ability and he made these adaptations and it worked for baseball. But like I said, those hands, you know, like my mother used to say, like meat hooks, you know, long, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that—that's what got the job done. But he, like I said, he wasn't trying to hit a ball five hundred and eighty-five feet. You know, three eighty will do. Yeah. Four hundred will do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Howard. Well, um, it, it,
4: yeah, I would I just jump off on that thing no, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. ahead. I'll I'll jump on start. that for, for, just for just for one one quick second. Ted Williams, considered the greatest hitter of all time, used to sit there in 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 the nineteen fifties and watch Henry and say, "You can't do what he's doing." Yeah, right. Even though you're, yeah. he said, "You can't hit off your front foot with that much power. You can't do it." And Henry would get that front foot stop and flick, and in, in in the you know one of the great study that are historians of hitting Ted Williams are just look at them. how does he do that? And for Ted Williams to marvel at what you're doing means you're, you're doing something pretty incredible.
2: Oh, you're right about that. I have to ask this, how it is, as Howard, as we're listening to Dave and, and Dave and I talked um, literally the, the day after Henry Aaron passed and, You know, we both were just, you know, very passionate about his our emotions and how the impact he had on us. And I reminded Dave, you know, if you all look at some of the older videos, there was one famous video from one of the All-Star games. Hank Aaron could hit a line drive home run with no arc. I mean, it was just like go straight over the fence, unbroken. I think Dave even referred it was those kind of balls that if shortstop got in the way, it would put a hole in his chest. (laughs) And only two people, Howard, I saw do that. That was Henry Aaron and Dave. When I saw mm-hmm. Dave Winfield hit a line drive in Yankee Stadium. It didn't arc. It didn't do none of that. It just went boom, straight. And everybody moved out the way. I think somebody even shouted clear. And it went, <laughs> it went <laughs> over the fence. You know, and, and that was, and, but I wonder, yeah. Dave, going back to you in the 400, when you got to 400 and said, wow, 300 more to go, did you have Did you have second thoughts and said, well, I wonder if I should have played basketball or football? Did,
3: no.
1: Did you think about that? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, I was fortunate to grow up in an era where you just played all sports your whole, you know, your whole life. But I found something I loved, baseball, early. I loved it. It loved me. It got me college scholarship, travel the world, meet presidents, do all kinds of things. And, I, you know, I was a pitcher. I was a shortstop and I ended up being an outfielder in the, in the major league. So I, I really, I didn't play the game seeking records. I was doing something I was passionate about. I was good about. My brother Steve and I would talk about from youngsters what we planned to do that day that was different, better, more unique. When I was playing shortstop, I got it deep in the hole. I let the guy run and then throw him out. My brother would make a Willie Mays catch when he's 12, 13 years old. He could fly. And And so when I played the game, I just wanted to find out what I was all about. How good could I be? Had they chosen me as a, and said Winfield when they drafted me, if you should be a pitcher. That's what I'd have been. Bob Gibson was my man that I wanted to be like Bob Gibson. As a hitter, I was just mm-hmm. a, a five tool guy. So I didn't know what I could accomplish, but I always approached, let me get, and this is a lesson maybe for some young people in other sports. The first thing, I was said, let me hit for an average because if I'm consistent, they can't get rid of me. And then it, but it, Mm -hmm. it was it was RBIs because those are important people. That's runs batted in for those uninformed in that respect. And then the last thing was home runs. So I never sought the home run first because if I didn't get on base and I had speed, I wasn't helping our team. So I just found ways that I could contribute. The best I could, and I ended up where I ended up. Mm-hmm. Well, it's
4: funny. I was listening to that, and it's and it's so it's so true. I'm thinking, imagine Dave Winfield on a mountain. That's you and J.R. Richard coming up at the same time, two oh, six yeah. six He's six sl- eight dudes. Wow, right? He's slinging and it, I'm slinging it. <laughs> right, that's right. And when you look at somebody like Henry, and both Dave and Henry, it's it, that's a good point, Mark, in terms of the the swing, my best friend and I used to fight all the time, right? Growing up in in, in Massachusetts, he was a Jim Rice guy. I was a Dave Winfield guy. And he used to be all the time talking about how, well, you know, Rice hits bigger home runs than Winfield. I said, yeah, but Winfield can catch the ball. (laughs) So we were going back and forth, you know, all the time about who's – and there is something to be said for the majestic home run, right? You look at the McGuire home runs, the ball just sort of goes. But I remember – The Dave Winfield home run, the big, you know, and and Dave never gets credit enough for this because he doesn't talk about himself that way either. But you didn't play in a in a in a ballpark that helped you as a home run hitter until you got to Minnesota. You're what forty? I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. San Diego was was not a right-handed hitter park. Yankee Stadium was 4:30 out there in Death Valley when you got there,
1: and. Yeah, yeah. San, San Diego was uh, was spacious, seventeen foot <laughs> high wall all around, four ten in center field, three thirty down the lines. It was a football stadium That's that you had to had to right. perform in. And then our team wasn't very good, so they're not going to pitch to you. But you and have I to get learn. anything ahead mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to learn those things. But I, I have to say this, and then Mark, I'll let you uh, take over once again. But when you mentioned your friend mentioned Jim Rice. Mm -hmm. Just thinking of it now, he was the closest person to Hank in terms of having wrists. wrists. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Jim Rice, watch him hit a golf ball one day. It's like, how does someone do that? Or when with his wrists and his power, to see him hit that second deck of Yankee Stadium on a line. Jim Rice was a powerful guy. But like you said, I played, I'd steal bases, played defense, throw mm-hmm. somebody out, all those other things. But Jim Rice was a formidable guy and deserves to be in all of Oh it.
4: yeah, no, Jimmy, Jimmy was, I, I absolutely, it was one of the things that I loved the most when I finally got my, my Hall of Fame vote was the, was the pleasure of voting for Jim Rice. I think when I got, I think my ballot was his last year. My first year was his last, two thousand eight. And he finally got, you know, got elected. And I remember finally walking into the clubhouse and the Red Sox clubhouse. And he walked in because he's a broadcaster now. And I got to say, say to him, hey, it wasn't me. I voted for you. Uh, you you were legit. And I think it's also thinking about that period, too, when you think about lineage. This is, a, this is a good sort of moment for us. I feel like this time that we're talking about right now, there is a lineage. There's a legacy to black baseball from Henry and Willie to, you know, to, to Stargell and Winfield and Rice. And it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And we're in the, you know, know, your best, you know, your your favorite players back then, you know, when I'm doing this Ricky research, every time you go hop on to look at a clip of somebody, there's black players all over the field. They're everywhere. Right. And then you you look at it now and it's just so, so very different. And I remember talking to, to Dusty and, and to Henry about this. One of the things that I'm so, so grateful to Henry for was the fact that he was willing to let us learn about him. He wanted to be known. I, I, I was talking to, to somebody, I think it was Dusty about this, but how angry I was at Frank Robinson. And, and, you know, Frank was tough. Frank was as tough as, as tough as they came. And you got to have a lot of respect and, and understanding for those black men that came in during that period because they dealt with so much. So much had been done to them. But at the same time, Frank knew that he deserved all his accolades. Frank knew that he deserved to be celebrated. Frank knew that he, he deserved to be known. Frank didn't want you to know him. Frank wouldn't let you in. Frank wouldn't let you celebrate him. So Frank. So when he passed away, I was so upset because Frank took his story with him. And now we can't get it from him. And I was so grateful to Henry. And I told him this when I talked to Henry a month ago. Just for everything that he went through and everything that he felt, he was still willing to give me an opportunity to get it right. And and I went to go talk to Frank about Henry back when I was working on the book. And Frank just wouldn't give an inch. And the book wasn't even about Frank, and he still didn't want to share anything and I'm just happy that 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 Henry did because once that institutional memory is gone, you can't get it back. you know there's only one Dave Winfield, there's only one Ricky, there's only one Dave Stewart, there's only one Hank Aaron and one Willie Mays, and you know it's our job to maintain these stories and to hear that voice that 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 primary source, and I'm just you know, I understood Frank as being a real tough guy about it, but nevertheless, that's a big loss to not know what he knew. Yeah,
2: well, yeah. Well. Uh, um, let me do this quick couple of points. I just want to go back over. You mentioned the this. Don't lose that
4: thought, Dave. I know you want to say something. Don't <laughs> Dave, lose if that you, thought. You, you want to yeah, say something, yeah, Dave. Uh,
3: uh, go okay, ahead. I, I, I don't I want to lose either. Go ahead. I
1: remember, matt You go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just have to make the, the the statement that for people who who don't know, people like. Of that era of the Hank Aaron and, and, and Mays and, and, and Billy Williams and McCovey, the collegiality, the openness, the, 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 uh, how, how do you say, just what they shared with the next generation was very important. How a guy like Willie mm-hmm. McCovey would treat me, what he would show me, put me under his wing. Sit me a rookie who knows nothing next to him on the airplane, and tell me this is what to expect, this is what to do. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to show you that kind of relationship with the next generation, certainly of black players, and we got up to eighteen twenty percent so that we were everywhere in every locker room, whether your team was good or not any good. But we would share with one another the experiences, the opportunities, the education. And Hank was one of those guys who did it with Dusty Baker, Ralph Gaw, all you know, all oh, yeah. of these guys. They will tell you that what Hank stood for and then his his, his quiet, gracious nature uh, meant so much to them and their careers and their lives. And I just have to emphasize Hank was one of those guys that helped pass on the legacy of the game and how we interact in it. And I'm very much appreciative Aaron. of that.
2: For many of us, I know for me, what Hank Aaron what Hank Aaron did on uh, April 8th, 1974, was a message to me that I could be anything I wanted to be. I had not even met my own father yet.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so to see... I wouldn't meet my own father till two years later, but to see Hank Aaron do that. And my mother was raising me by herself, and she turned on the television and said, we're going to watch this together, and I'll, and I'll never forget that. So, um, God bless uh, the life and legacy of uh, Henry Louis Aaron, and uh, we will lift up his name forever. Thank you, Howard Bryant. Thank, Thank you, David. Love both you brothers, okay? Stay safe, Thank y'all. I'll see you later.
0: Thank okay.
2: You.